Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go for the June-July 2023 issue. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting the June-July 2023 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Today, we also have the pleasure of welcoming longtime AMDA friend and regular contributor, Alan Horowitz. Alan is of counsel in the healthcare practice and a member of the post-acute and long-term care industry team at Arnold Golden Gregory. He's an innovative healthcare lawyer handling complex regulatory issues involving Medicare providers like skilled nursing facilities, hospices, and home health agencies. In addition to his law degree, Mr. Horowitz has education and training as a nurse and a registered respiratory therapist. And Alan, I think you're you're still a licensed RN, right? I am, and that's just in case this law thing doesn't work out. <laughs> so far, it seems to be working out pretty well, and we appreciate it. Uh, anyway, before joining the firm, Alan served as assistant regional counsel at the Department of Health and Human Services, where, among other things, he worked closely with and litigated cases on behalf of CMS. Uh, and nowadays, now that he's turned away from the dark side, uh, as counsel to providers, Alan has successfully negotiated and litigated significant cases against CMS. And uh, some of you listeners probably know Alan. He's been a frequent presenter at uh, national and state forums, including our AMDA meetings and other educational offerings on topics regarding health law. And he's also a regular contributor to Caring for the Ages. And uh, Alan uh, and Pat Bach and I had the pleasure of giving a talk uh, on medical aid and dying, which is the article that we're going to be discussing here uh, in a in a minute. Anyway, Beth and Alan, uh, welcome to Carrying On the Go. Thank you, thank you for that kind introduction. Th- thanks, Carl. And I also want to say um, that Alan was the um, recipient of the Carrie Cowles Award um, that we just um, awarded at the AMDA conference this year in March in Tampa. And um, it's for the most downloaded article. And um, all of Alan's articles are actually very highly downloaded, but um, we appreciate everything um, that he does for caring. And I I thought that the article we're going to discuss today, he presented a very nice kind of balanced overview of, of the issue. 
Yeah, thanks for the reminder. I, I uh, and and congratulations again on winning the uh, winning the Coles Award, Alan. That's a uh, that's a great tribute. Well, thank so, you both for your kind remarks. Thank you. All right, so we'll kick off today's session talking about your article, Alan, from page one of the June July issue, and this is on the topical topic of medical aid in dying. Uh, sometimes referred to by other names, uh, you know, that sort of span the spectrum as far as value judgments, starting with uh, death with dignity on one side, uh, end of life option or options, and then on the other side, physician assisted suicide. So again, at the end of annual meeting in March in Tampa, Dr. Patricia Bach, Alan and I gave a presentation on this topic. Uh, even though medical aid in dying, or MAID as we call it, uh, it's very rare in nursing homes in the jurisdictions in the U.S. where it's a legal option. But uh, Alan, can you please explain to our listeners what we're talking about here and some of the issues that it brings up? Sure, and thank you for that kind introduction, uh, Carl. Um, so medical aid in dying, or as commonly referred to as MAID, um, also is referred to even in the literature as um as Carl mentioned, um, physician-assisted suicide, death with dignity. It is not physician-assisted suicide, um, and I want to be clear about that. So let me provide a a brief overview. Uh, There are 11 jurisdictions that have passed legislation that allow medical aid in dying, which is um, a situation where a physician uh, can prescribe a lethal dose of a medication to a patient, so long as the patient meets certain criteria. Uh, Those criteria are the patient has to be an adult, uh, the patient has to have decision-making capacity uh, and be competent enough to make that determination to end his or her life. Uh, The patient has to be terminally ill as defined in the various legislation as a prognosis of six months or less. And the patient has to self be able to self-administer um, the medication, which is an important distinction, and that separates made from, say, physician-assisted suicide. Uh, when the term physician-assisted suicide is used, many people think of Dr. Kevorkian from years ago, who had an active role in, in actually um, metaphorically pulling the trigger or opening up the IV. There's one other requirement other than the four that I just met I mentioned, and that is a residency Um, All 11 jurisdictions require a residency except for one, and that is Oregon. Last year in 2022, Oregon waived a residency requirement so that if somebody moved to the state of Oregon and requested um, medical aid in dying from a licensed physician and they were an adult, terminally ill, they were competent, and they were able to self-administer the medication, uh, they they could have that um, procedure done. They could self-administer the lethal dose in Oregon. Um, One thing that's essential and important to know uh, for physicians and advanced practice providers is that there is um, no obligation for a physician uh, to comply with this. If it um, doesn't comport with a physician's ethical or moral beliefs, um, they do not have to cooperate in any way. The extent of what they would have to do if it's a patient you know, subject to HIPAA disclosure requirements is forward the medical records to another physician. Most of the um, legislation requires both the attending, both the physician who's going to write the prescription as well as a second physician or in one state, an advanced practice provider um, who can certify, who will certify that the individual has decision-making capacity. 
Um, again, there's no obligation for physicians to, to comply with a patient's request um, if they choose not to participate in that. Um, and if, if I have time, Carl, uh, I'd like to briefly talk about two legal cases that highlight uh, how various states are dealing with this issue from a legal perspective. Sure. Um, maybe before we do that, uh, I just I wanted to, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, it's controversial, right? I think uh, many of our listeners might say, uh, you know, I don't want any part of that. That's not part of what doctors are supposed to do. You know, it's it erodes trust in the profession. And, you know, there's all those arguments about it. And uh, but yet, uh, you know, I think a lot of others and the public certainly uh, have strong feelings that this is uh, something that people should have access to, whether or not an individual prescriber wants to be part of it. So uh, one thing we realized in preparing for our presentation, I think you were the one that dug it up, was that AMDA has not revisited or sunsetted our 1997 policy, right? So that's pretty old, uh, that uh, formally opposes medical aid in dying. And I think it's probably time to revisit that. And I I think we'll ask the ethics committee to make a recommendation and or maybe we'll just, you know, a couple of our state chapters will bring a resolution to next year's House of Delegates uh, or maybe take a neutral position on it. And uh, anyway, yeah, if you want to talk about those cases and then and then, Beth, if you have anything you want to ask, Alan. Sure. So there, there are two cases um, that caught my attention that deal with MAID. And the first is a case that out of California. And California is one of the 11 jurisdictions that allow end-of-life options. And in 2016, they passed an End-of-Life Options Act. Um, and around that time, or just after that time, there was a, a patient um, at University of California, San Francisco Medical Center who had stage four metastatic cancer, who was terminal, um, and she was aware of California's End of Life Options Act. She asked, according to legal pleadings, she asked um, her treating oncologist and various hospital workers, social workers and a nurse, uh, would you help me uh, to uh, end my life consistent with California law by allowing me to have a lethal prescription? And allegedly, um, both the, the, med the medical center, the oncologist, the social worker, any number of employees um, all agreed to cooperate with her when she was discharged. Um, and she said, well, you know, I, I don't want to have an undignified death. I'd like to avail myself of MAID uh, pursuant to California law. The oncologist, the medical center, and everyone involved said, sorry, we don't do that. Um, unfortunately, um, this patient went home and had um, a very unpleasant death, exactly what she had wanted to avoid. Her family sued um, the oncologist, the medical center, and a number of other in individuals. And it's interesting, they, the basis for that legal suit that was fire, filed in the California courts was negligence, fraud, misrepresentation, and even they alleged a violation of California's elder abuse uh, statute. They sought uh, attorney's fees and costs and punitive damages. The case ultimately settled, but it, um, I think the takeaway from that is if a physician or healthcare provider um, indicates that they will cooperate with a patient and then they subsequently decide not to, um, they should notify the patient as soon as possible, obviously, to avoid a situation like this. Um, and uh, if, if a facility or individual practitioner isn't clear about whether or not they're going to participate, um, it, it's best not to uh, indicate otherwise to a patient 
uh, that just leads to trouble. Which brings up another point. Documentation is always, always the key. Uh, I, I've said this countless times, whether I represented CMS or now for the last 11 years representing providers, um, anytime there's a legal issue in a healthcare space, it's been my experience, the outcome will always turn on the documentation. So it's absolutely imperative uh, for the physician involved to document conversations with the patient, uh, the fact that a second practitioner has determined that the patient has decision-making capacity. Um, and again, the documentation is ultimately going to be key. The other case that I'll just briefly mention is a more recent case out of Massachusetts where uh, the patient actually was a physician um, and he had stage four metastatic prostate cancer and he wanted to um, end his life uh, with a lethal cocktail. He had a physician who was willing to uh, prescribe the lethal dose and they went to court um, to seek the court's permission um, for the physician to prescribe the lethal dose and the, and the other physician patient to take that. Uh, the case will, uh, worked its way through um, the courts in Massachusetts all the way up to the Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts. And in that case, the court held that there is no right to take your life, number one, so the, the patient could not receive um, a lethal dose. And number two, the physician who was willing to prescribe a lethal dose could not do that. So this, as we speak in the state of Massachusetts right now, unlike California and the other 10 jurisdictions, um, it is not permissible. And, and in fact, it, it, if a physician in Massachusetts at this time prescribed a lethal cocktail, he or she uh, could be charged with murder. So the states are quite literally all over the map. And I'll just close with this. Uh, I'd mentioned that there are 11 jurisdictions, uh, 10 states in Washington, D.C., that allow by statute medical aid in dying. There is currently pending legislation in 14 other states so currently we've got about 20% of the country um, living in jurisdictions where made is legal and another roughly 25% uh, of the states are considering legislation that's, that's pending in their state legislature. So um, I don't have a crystal ball in front of me, but if I were to guess, um, I would think that next year at this time, uh, we will have more than 20 states uh, that have legalized made. So whatever physician's personal uh, philosophy is an orientation, and I can respect all sides of the issue. Um, I, I think that we're going to see more and more instances where patients are asking for medical aid and dying. And one last thought, um, more than 90% of the recipients of the patients who've asked for a lethal dose and received it uh, were on hospice. So we're talking about a subset of you know, post-acute long-term care that are particularly uh, likely to request medical aid in dying. Um, so that's a, just a very brief legal overview. And again, the one takeaway that, that I would respectfully offer is regardless of your position on this issue, uh, if you encounter a patient that uh, wants to have a discussion about that, um, please have thorough and accurate documentation as to what was said and what you told the patient. All right. Well, and uh, so listeners, uh, you just got some free legal advice. Uh, you know, do do a diligent documentation, right? The Alan will be sending you all a bill for that. So uh, uh, take the advice. Beth, anything on this? Sure. Um, one of the reasons that I really like this article in particular was um, that it presented both sides and um, talked about those who oppose the procedure and the arguments that 
um, support that so that um, medical aid in dying may not really be necessary as long as good palliative care is provided um, to the to the patient and that there's potential for abuse. And as someone who cares for um, uh well, we all care for vulnerable older adults. I care for individuals with later stage dementia primarily. And while I realize that medical aid in dying requires someone to self-administer and there's no obligation of by physicians or providers to participate, I do worry about a slippery slope where some individuals may feel compelled to pursue end-of-life options with medical aid in dying, not so much for themselves, but um, they're worried about being a burden on others. Um, and so that that always makes me kind of uh, give, give a pause. I also think it's challenging to implement in a facility setting because you have so many different people who are engaging with that person and with different ethical beliefs. Um, and many of our residents may really be able to, may be unable to self-administer. Um, so just lots of things to consider, but I'm glad we're at least having the discussion. Yeah, thanks, Beth. And and I mean, there are certainly equity issues. I'd say, you know, this probably tilts in the other direction where most of the people who take advantage of this option are people who are, you know, well-to-do and educated and, you know, sort of have that uh, agency. Uh, and maybe it's something that is is less available to the sort of traditionally disadvantaged uh, population, but but I agree. And I don't think, um, I mean, nursing homes, since they're so heavily funded by Medicare, there is that 1997 uh, federal legislation that prohibits any type of Medicare funding to go toward uh, what was called at that time, physician-assisted suicide. So, uh, but I think as we baby boomers hit our golden years, Autonomy is going to continue to drive change in this arena, and organizations like Compassion and Choices are well-funded and really active in promoting access to medical aid in dying. Uh, and that's, you know, in spite of some of the regressive laws and court decisions that are coming down in some parts of the country. So I also would direct our listeners to take a look at senior reporter Joanne Caldy's accompanying piece on MAID. Uh, I did want to make a correction. It's Medicare funding, not Medicaid funding uh, that is prohibited from being used uh, for this purpose, which makes it also risky for hospices to participate directly in it. Um, Alan, any final words on this topic? Any additional legal advice? Uh, any? You already predicted that more states will be passing this. Uh, what else? Yeah, I think the uh, at the risk of being redundant, the best legal advice that, that I can provide is just to have thorough, accurate, timely documentation uh, regarding of the, you know, regard, regardless of what your position is. But anytime that discussion is held with a patient, um, you know, your best defense against potential liability down the road is adequate documentation as to what was said, what was suggested. Um, and that would be my best legal advice. Uh, keep in mind that uh, free advice is worth what it costs. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, one other thing um, that that you said, Beth, that, uh, you know, sort of resonated with me is that uh, people who um, people who have advanced dementia and so on, of course, would never be uh, would never be able to avail themselves of it because they don't have, uh, you know, decision making capacity. Um, but uh, I've had patients who part of the reason why they want to avail themselves of this is exactly so that they don't become a burden 
on their families. And I mean, part of that's wrapped up into loss of independence and so on. And they just don't want to go from point A to point B. They just want to kind of check out now before things get bad, which, you know, that seems reasonable, but that makes me uncomfortable, right? It's like, you know, I don't want to spend up my kids inheritance. And yet, um, if that's their decision, it's their body. I mean, it's, it's really a complex bioethical issue. So, uh, maybe we'll revisit this at some point, but otherwise this podcast is going to be two hours long. So, <laughs> so I think we'll move on. So, uh, uh, Alan, thanks so much for, for being here and sharing. Um, so Beth, our next article is going to be a clinical piece also based on a presentation at the AMDA annual meeting. And this one's from reporter Christine Kilgore below the fold on page one of this issue. And this is about thromboembolic events, anticoagulation, and COVID-19. A quote that stood out to me from this article was, let's not wait for residents to develop a VTE. Let's anticipate a VTE event. I have to admit that during the peak of COVID, I was not always that proactive on this, although I, I don't recall any bad outcomes or you know clinically significant thromboembolic events from not anticoagulating them. But uh, Beth, what did you find most compelling about this article? Um, so having a family member um, early in the pandemic get COVID before vaccines were available, and then um, approximately four months later, she did have a, a, thrombo a thromboembolic event that was significant. And then having one of my patients who was vaccinated but developed um, um, a stroke following this, it's... It, um, concerning to me that perhaps we have overlooked this a little bit, um, particularly because our residents have other risks given their immobility. And I just thought this was a great um, clinical topic. And one of the reasons why we wanted to, to put it on the front page below the fold. Um, and the, the um, presenters in this really talked about um, a couple of things. One, um, they said that the predominant cell type re responsible for COVID-19 induced coagula coagulopathy was um, due to platelets. And so they, one of them, Dr. Um, Abul did a retrospective cohort analysis of nursing home residents who had been on low dose aspirin kind of for other reasons prior to the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And they compared those who weren't and found that those individuals who were on um, low-dose aspirin um, had uh, reduced 30-day and 56-day mortality rates. Hmm. And But interestingly enough, um, they then talked about some of the other studies where people were prescribed aspirin in randomized controlled trials um, after having COVID and um, or, you know, after they had the COVID-19 infe infection. And that showed no differences in um, mortality differences. Mm -hmm. Yes, so prescribe they're, what <laughs> they're not recommending aspirin. Instead, um, their recommendation was um, focused on um, rivaroxaban, and simply because of its once-a-day administration, its impact on platelets, and that it doesn't require a lot of um, monitoring requirements. Although they did mention um, and, and provided some literature to support that uh, pharmacologically low-weight molecular heparin um, would probably even be a better option. So I just thought it was a really interesting article and um, provided a lot of, um, you know, evidence from the literature. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, so the the uh, sort of nutshell take home for our listeners: at least consider anticoagulation uh, uh, after COVID uh, as a sort of prophylactic uh, treatment for uh, avoiding uh, thromboembolic events. Yeah, but not aspirin. <laughs> not aspirin. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Um, well, fine, Lynn, let's move on. We're going to talk about uh, your caring collaborative article, Beth, on page two, entitled, What Matters Most? How to Find Joy at Work in Post-Acute and Long-Term Care. Uh, nice nice uh, sentiment, and I hope I speak for most of our listeners, and I know I speak for you and me when I say that I find joy almost every day in PALTC, right? Even on days when I don't take a dog or two to work with me. I, I mean, for the most part, we choose this population and this care setting to work in because we find it meaningful and fulfilling, even when we're caring for very ill, challenging, uh, and even dying people. So Beth, please tell me what kinds of strategies you're recommending here uh, for people like our listeners to enhance their work experience in nursing homes and other long-term care settings. Thanks, Carl. So in addition, in addition to enhancing our own uh, workplace experience, I'd also, because many of us are in leadership positions, think about how we promote that in our other team members. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use kind of the um, Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the IHI published framework that actually came out in 2017, prior to the pandemic, that addressed um, improving joy at work. And it was specific for healthcare setting. And if people are interested, it's available free on the internet. It's a white paper and provides a step-based approach that healthcare leaders can use to try to foster joy, not just satisfaction, but actual joy in the healthcare workforce. And so the first step is really asking um, either yourself or the colleagues that you work with, what matters most in your professional work life? And for us, it should be easy because we're always asking um, our patients and families kind of what matters most right. uh, when we're doing advanced care planning um, and, and you know making treatment decisions. So we should be able to have no trouble with that. And um, then the next step really for the leaders or for ourselves is to think about identifying some of the barriers that get in the way of us being able to engage in what matters most and doing our best to remove them. And I told a little story in there about a um, very skilled nurse who worked in a post-acute and long-term care setting who really wasn't being utilized up to his capacity um, and made a request of that um, to get more engaged with having some more complicated um sniff residents admitted and leadership really got behind him to support him in that endeavor and and really um gave him a stake in it and how well that went not only for him um but also um retention of the employees on that unit as well as a waiting list for people to get into that sniff <laughs> wow yeah that's uh, that's nice and i i think uh i just love this idea and i you know um, giving positive reinforcement to the people we work with, thanking them and acknowledging when they've handled the situation well and so on. And that really goes a long way, I think, toward making them feel good about what they did, uh, you know, when they go home from work and, you know, when they get up and look in the mirror the next morning. I mean, it's always 
be the answer to the question, am I going to be doing something that is of service to others today? Will always be yes. And I hope most of the people that work in nursing homes, my experience is they do uh, find joy in that. And I think our our care setting kind of self-selects for people who do find joy. Uh, and if our listeners are not finding that joy at work, uh, it's worth uh, taking some action, try to figure out how you can, because uh, it, it's always nice to go to work and not feel like you're really working per se, right? That you're doing something that that you love. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for that article. So finally, we're going to wrap up with a really timely article from page 11 of this issue by reporter Christine Kilgore about improving the quality of opioid and other substance use disorder treatment in nursing homes. Uh, most of our listeners are probably aware that in January, restrictions requiring a special DEA registration to provide to prescribe buprenorphine, like Suboxone, for opioid use disorder were lifted. So basically, any prescriber who can prescribe Schedule Three controlled substances can prescribe buprenorphine for this indication. Uh, now all prescribers, you know, uh, are required to take eight hours of CME credits on this topic, and they're going to need to attest to it uh, when the next DEA registration uh, renewal comes around, and that starts on June 27th, so right around the corner. Uh, AMDA is going to have some links on our website for uh, qualifying CME offerings at no charge. But anyway, Dr. Gallick, what are the most important points out of this article you want our listeners to appreciate? Sure. I, I really do think this is timely. And part of it was I, I realized that my I have to do my DEA um, renewal in September, which is really right around the corner. And, yeah, and get busy. the uh, continuing education I have to do between my clinical practice as well as the university and now the extra eight hours of um, of uh, substance use disorder training, while it'll be valuable, um, I, I'm going to have my summer kind of uh, quite busy. But I wanted to really share that many facilities, particularly private facilities in the past, have shied away from um, admitting patients with substance use disorders and particularly um, um, opioid use disorders um, because they could say they didn't have the um, individuals there who could provide the care. But now that this is, you know, the restrictions have been moved away because we've been seeing more and more older adults. Um, New York State, according to the article, mentions a 10% increase um, in, in individuals with um, opioid use disorders. But um, anyway, you're going to kind of be forced to educate your staff um, because if you refuse care repeatedly to this population, it could be considered discriminatory under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and so the old practice of just refusing probably isn't going to be sufficient anymore. So some things you can do is really addressing facility-related barriers to providing care to this these patients, such as staff preparedness, and probably first talking about staff perceptions of addiction um, and removing some of the myths. And then um, really right now, there's not a, a whole lot of resources available necessarily at, at, um, at different facilities. And so there is um, a group called the Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health and Nursing Facilities um, that received a SAMHSA grant in conjunction with CMS to um, develop and share currently existing 
um, educational um, materials um, in an online resource hub. And they have kind of um, some live events that people can register for, as well as resources on the site that are written or slides that can be used. Um, they also, if you go to the website, um, it is HTTPS, um, nursinghomebehavioralhealth.org, um, and then it is uh, forward slash resources. You can sign up to receive um, text and newsletter alerts that um, let you know what um, educational sessions are coming up or just um, tips that you can incorporate into a staff meeting. So at least there will be a start to providing some of these resources. That's great. And maybe we can uh, include that link in the little text, you know, where people click to to listen to the podcast. Uh, if there's a way to do that, we will do that. Yeah. And really, I think it's great that we're removing barriers to successful treatment of opioid use disorders in our nursing home residents and beyond. You know, I, too, have seen cases where a nursing home refuses to admit a hospital transfer. I mean, methadone historically uh, was that was a big problem if they were on it for for opioid maintenance, uh, but even for Suboxone, you know, in recent years. And we really need to get rid of that stigma. Uh, you know, our listeners who prescribe should do their best to get comfortable with the concepts of harm reduction and, you know, the really well-established safety and efficacy of long-term maintenance therapy with buprenorphine. Uh, you know, I, I have a long history with this stuff. And, uh, um, you know, I've always sort of believed in abstinence. And, uh, you know, like, why would you put an opioid into somebody who has an opioid problem? But, but the, you know, research is really compelling on this. And, and uh so uh, we should feel comfortable keeping people on on maintenance and not trying to taper. It's, you know, people have a much higher risk of relapse if you taper them. So uh, it's counterintuitive. I, I kind of don't like it uh, philosophically, but I can't argue with the evidence. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we should get ready to be prescribing this to appropriate patients. And some of us, uh, you know, medical directors, there may be other prescribers who come to the building who are like, well, I'm just not going to do that. Um, and so it may fall to us to to assist with uh, with that specific prescribing. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is you're going to have to be providing the training because there's um, a new um, F tag that covers substance abuse. Um, so, you know, they're they're doing the carrot and the stick, so to speak. We, we have to, we <laughs> oh, have to get Lord. prepared. <laughs> and yeah. for those people who are looking for some free CEs, the AMA actually does provide the eight hours full training. Also, the American Academy of Nurse Practitioners um, also provides some tr free training as well on their website. Yeah, actually, New England Journal does too, and you don't have to be a subscriber. So I think AMDA will have on our website, you will have uh, a bunch of links for um uh, extensive free CMEs on this topic. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, anyway, so uh, we've wrapped up talking about the articles. I just want to mention a few other things because there was so much additional great content in this issue, including Jerry Winokur's meditations column uh, about President Biden and his age and health. Uh, you know, that's uh, intriguing and it's it's a real thing that people need to think about. Uh, and it's from a sort of a geriatrician standpoint. I enjoyed Dr. Steve Levinson's thought-provoking column about recent calls for nursing home reform and basically how it's deja vu all over again. Uh, you know, what, if anything, have we learned or, you know, are we going to be doing this again in, in 10, 20 years? Uh, and then Dr. Salami's brief 
pragmatic research column on an interventional study where a dynamic lighting system upgrade was compared to standard lighting and showed a 43% decrease in falls, which, I mean, that's uh, impressive, right? Certainly worth considering in our buildings if it's uh, something that can be budgeted. Uh, so Dr. Gallick, before we close, uh, any final comments or wisdom on these or other of your favorite articles from this issue? Yeah. Yes, I enjoyed the articles you mentioned. I also want to um, draw listeners' attention to uh, Paige Hector's article. It's kind of a follow-up to the article on obesity in the previous in our previous issue, and this one's on the impact of weight stigma in long-term care. It's very well done. And then um, Dan Hamowitz, um, uh, one of our um, Caring for the Ages editorial board members, um, wrote an article on assisted living and kind of balancing person-centered social care model of care with also appropriate medical um, health care. And more articles are going to be coming from the assisted living um, group at AMDA. So if that's where you're practicing, um, anticipate more to come. Yeah, yeah. Dan's doing some great work on that. Uh, so, um, all right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the June, July 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird. Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Take a look at this mid-year issue, available as always without a paywall, at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Uh, and I also want to let our listeners know that we're going to be having a special topic issue about sexual expression in post-acute and long-term care coming up later this year. So uh, be on the lookout for that interesting content. We're uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, and that's going to wrap it up. Thank you. Until next time, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org/podcast.